Imagine for a minute that you're 3,000 miles north of Charleston, standing on Greenland's massive ice sheet. You hear meltwater streams rushing, everything is white or vibrant blue. And even though you're so far from Charleston's coastline, everything happening there on that ice sheet is affecting how much and how fast sea levels are rising at home. This week on Understand South Carolina, we'll be going behind the scenes of a special report that showed us how Greenland and Charleston are connected. We'll hear from reporter Tony Bartlemy and photographer Lauren Petraka about their trip to Greenland, and you'll hear what they saw out on that ice sheet, what they learned from speaking with locals, and how they got to fly in a plane over the icebergs with NASA. I highly recommend you check out their story, which is linked in today's show notes. If you have read it, most of the information in today's episode will still be new to you, and you'll learn about what it takes to pull off a reporting trip like this, and what stuck with them the most about their time in Greenland. I am Lauren Petraka, and I'm a staff photographer at The Post and Courier. I'm Tony Bartlemy. I'm a project reporter for The Post and Courier. So, first question, Why? Why Greenland? Well, that's a great question, and I'll begin with an ice bag. So I'm sure you've carried a bag of ice outside out the grocery store. So it's heavy. Now imagine that ice bag is three times the size of Texas, and it's 5,000 feet high. So that's a huge amount of ice, and that ice is melting very fast. And that's what's causing a lot of changes here in South Carolina, believe it or not. Where did the idea come from? Is this something that you thought of or did it come from somewhere else? It began probably about three years ago when I was working on this project about the Gulf Stream. And the Gulf Stream, uh, we had learned, flows off the coast of South Carolina with such force that it actually lowers our sea level. It's kind of like a centrifuge. It just pulls the water away from our coast. Uh, So much that if the Gulf Stream suddenly stopped, our sea level would be three feet higher. In the course of that reporting, I learned that the Gulf Stream flows north all the way toward Greenland, where Greenland's melting ice is sending this big slug of fresh water into this ocean conveyor belt, gumming it up, slowing it down. When I learned that, you know, I tucked that little bit about Greenland in my mind, and then I also learned some other interesting connections that involve gravity. What are the logistics of planning a reporting trip? What goes into that? Yeah, I think it's helpful to know first a little bit about Greenland. It's it's 3,000 miles north of Charleston, between North America and Europe. And it's actually not that far away from New York. If you had a direct flight from New York to, to Greenland, it'd be only four hours. But there's no really easy way to get to it. It was really difficult, especially with coronavirus going on. Usually you can fly from New York City maybe to Canada or to Iceland and then up to Greenland. So it wouldn't take very long. But because of coronavirus, we had to fly across the ocean over to Denmark and then back over to Greenland. So it was 20 hours of travel. We had to get several COVID tests on the way. Only 56,000 people live in this country the size of Mexico. And they're all in these little towns along the coast. And there are no roads between any of these towns. So you have to fly in either or use a boat. So getting there was really tough. And yeah, and coronavirus made it even tougher. 
How much time did you have there? And what was kind of the reporting game plan for when you got to Greenland? Of course, with any kind of reporting trip like this, you have a certain number of stops and people that you're meeting. What was the plan when you actually got there? When we got there, we did a lot of exploring the first couple days. So we got an aerial flight over the western part of Greenland. We scheduled a boat tour, a sunset boat tour, which actually left at 10 p.m. because the sun actually never really fully set while we were there. So on that, we sailed through the ice fjord and through these huge icebergs. It was just the most incredible sight. And then from there, we kind of had some open days that we wanted to just be able to explore, get to meet people, learn more about what the community was like. And then we knew at the end of the trip that we had a flight scheduled with some climate scientists with NASA. We didn't know exactly what day we were going to fly with them until a couple days before. So we left that half of the trip pretty open so that we could make sure we were available to go with them and then had to last minute kind of plan around that and figure out how to fly back to Kangarlooswak, which was where they were based. Yeah, the, the names are really impossible to pronounce. Lauren's a lot better at, the, at it than I am. I can I can pronounce Nyuk. I think it's Nuke. Oh, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> see? That flight with NASA, that's something that comes up multiple times during the story. We're kind of following along with that flight and what's happening. What was that flight all about? What NASA mission is connected to Greenland? Yeah, so there is a a program called OMG, which does not stand for Oh My God. It stands for Oceans Melting Greenland, and it's a project that NASA has been doing for, this is their sixth year. They basically fly around the country in an airplane, and they drop instruments into the water to measure it. And that experiment, they've uncovered some really interesting findings about how oceans are eating into one of the most important glaciers in the world. You know, I I really have been talking to the lead scientist for a a couple of years, and, and we couldn't go to Greenland last year because of the coronavirus. And then we finally figured out a way to go this year. And I wasn't sure if we would be able to connect because we had to fly, or, you know, take a, a plane between towns in Greenland, and that's tricky. But then it all worked out. And so we ended up flying with him. And, and he helps from a storytelling standpoint. He's a great character himself, a great guy. His name is Josh Willis. Josh is known as the Climate Elvis. He got that name uh, after he did a music video a few years ago in which he dresses up as an Elvis impersonator and sings about climate. And it went on YouTube. You know, he's a comedian himself. He he went to Second City's comedy school in Los Angeles and graduated from there. And he, he's an, one of these rare breed breed of scientists who actually can speak in, in really, you know, ways that help connect his research to people. And and so he, he was just this perfect character for me to talk to uh, from a storytelling standpoint. Great guy. What was that? actual experience of that flight? Like what kind of plane were you on? What kind of things were you seeing when you were on that flight? So that's kind of a funny story from the trip. Tony and I both have, I think, a healthy fear of flying. It's not overwhelming, but it's not our favorite thing. And so going into it, I knew the plane was going to be old. I was a little nervous. And then when we got there, we had to do a flight training because to go up with NASA, you have to be considered essential crew. So the pilot gave us 
this tutorial before on, you know, things like where the emergency exits are, where the oxygen would be if you need it. And then he said, if you are the only ones left, you need to know how to turn off the engine and taught us how to turn off the engine. And I immediately looked at Tony with wide eyes, like, are we really about to do this? And you seemed pretty calm and collected. I thought it was hilarious because it kept on getting worse. It was, and if, you know, you're, if you ditch and, you, and, you, and you're the only one who's alive, you got to use a hammer or whatever you can to break through the window in the cockpit. And, and yeah, poor Lauren. So, so yeah, I was pretty freaked out. And then when we took off, it was way more turbulent than I expected. You could see the whole plane kind of like moving in the air. And for the first half hour, I was pretty freaked out. And then I was like, you know what, there's nothing that I can do to change the situation. So I may as well just get out of my seat and do the best I can. And so I think it was a four hour flight. And so for the rest of it, I was kneeling against windows on the floor. And it was just incredible views. We were flying at 500 feet altitude over the ocean and over icebergs and fishing boats. And so it was just this view that not many people ever get to have and an incredible experience. Super grateful to NASA for letting us go up with them. A lot of this story kind of centers around the, I'm going to attempt to pronounce something here, Ilulisat? Ooh. Tell us more about that. Why is this glacier the, I think you described it as the most important glacier you've never heard of? Yeah. Have you ever heard of the Ilulisat? I can't even pronounce it. Lauren? <laughs> Ilulisat Glacier, also known as Jakobshavn, which probably more people know it by. Exactly. That, that, so that's a, yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a glacier that's actually part of the ice sheet. And, and the ice sheet is this massive amount of ice, that big ice bag I mentioned, uh, sitting on Greenland, pushing toward the ocean. And it goes through this fjord, essentially this, this bottleneck, and is pouring into the ocean. And scientists call it a floodgate. So it's this really important place where a lot of the ice is flowing into the sea very quickly. So it was really important for us to, to focus on something that we could get our minds around. And so that's, that's why we spent a lot of our time just, just focusing on that particular area and that, that small area in that huge country. You also had a chance to walk out on the ice sheet. Lauren, how did you do that and take photos <laughs> at the same time? What was that like? That's a great question. It was really hard. I wish we could have done it twice because I feel like I would have maybe gotten the handle of how to do it best the second time. To go out onto the ice sheet, you have to use hiking poles because a lot of times you need to jump over these crevices. And you also need crampons because if you slip on the ice, you can fall into one of those crevices and you probably won't be recovered. I think I brought both my cameras, but I put one in Tony's bag because I was like, I don't know if I can manage having two cameras. I usually use two cameras, one to have a more wide angle lens on and one to have a zoom on so that I don't have to be switching lenses. But I ended up just wearing one camera around my neck and that was all I used the whole time because it was really hard to, every time I wanted to stop to take a picture, I had to kind of readjust my hiking poles and then take up my camera. So it was really hard to get quick moments. And it was also pretty dangerous. Our guide kind of had a rule that if he wanted to take pictures, someone had to be holding onto your backpack so that you wouldn't fall. So it wasn't that easy to just stop and take a picture if you saw something. So when you fly over the ice sheet, it looks flat. But when you get down onto it, it looks like this 
desert landscape almost, like southern Utah or Arizona, the Grand Canyon, really, and except for everything is white and blue. And it's really dangerous. You've got all these meltwater rivers curling through the ice that look like bobsled tracks. And and yeah, and you, you would walk next to this crack that you, you know you you knew just went down hundreds of feet. At several points, we were just walking right over these cracks. I almost didn't make it over one. I was too afraid. One thing that I feel like we have talked about a lot here or heard from people here is just describing how we have physically seen Charleston, the low country, change as sea level rises, as we have more severe weather. Is that something that you were able to hear from people in Greenland, how they have seen the landscape around them change during their lifetime? Yeah, our guide, Adam, on the ice tour, he actually told us while we were up there that he can see it changing every day. He says he's been out on the ice about 3,000 times, and he can see changes day to day. And then one day, Tony and I were on a hike, and I met this guy who was picking berries to sell them, kind of on the cliffside by these big icebergs. And I spoke to him for a little bit, and he said that he's lived in Lulasat for his whole life and that the area he was picking berries used to be all ice, and now there's berries growing. We also hung out with a lot of fishermen. So what do people do in Greenland? Well, the main thing is they, they fish. That's how they you know eat and how they make money. So maybe the biggest fish they, they go after is the halibut, uh, which is a very expensive, lucrative fish to go after. And they often do that during the winter when the ice ar- around the coast freezes and they can go out onto the ice and do ice fishing. And they do that with their sled dogs and you know, that's how they make a lot of money. The problem is as the climate warms, the ice gets thinner. The ice has become so thin sometimes that they can actually feel the waves in the ice. So it's becoming less of a, an industry that, that they can depend on. And one of the people we talked to, a fisherman named Ringo, you know, he said, if, if there's no ice, there's no money. Yeah, the sled dog population in Greenland has actually decreased by more than half in the last two decades because there's just not as much of a need for it. And now some people can even take out boats to fish in the wintertime, which you could never do before. It's still a place that seems very difficult to imagine, different from here, different from a lot of places. What were some of the things that just surprised you in that that day-to-day of being there? While I was there, I was struck by how people are still so connected to the land there. They depend on the land for hunting and fishing. You know, that's their jobs, but it's also how they feed their families. And so they go out hunting on the weekends, and then they freeze that meat for the whole year to be able to live off of. So just seeing a culture that is still so connected to the land around them. It was a really cool thing to experience. For me, I was I was blown away by the the size of things. Uh, I remember we landed at the airport and we were driving into town. We went around a bend and I saw these icebergs off in the distance and they were huge and it was an emotional moment just to see the size of these big honking icebergs. And then we kept on seeing bigger icebergs and, and bigger and icebergs, the, the closer we got to them and when we went on hikes and then when we flew over them, uh, the sheer size, it kind of helped me think about the whole story as, you know, there are these tremendous forces around the world that are changing our climate. 
And those forces are affecting very large forces here in Greenland that are affecting, you know, things here every year. We'll be right back with more from Tony and Lauren right after this quick message. I'm Chloe Johnson, and I report on the coastal environment and climate change for the Post and Courier. Charleston is on the front lines of climate change and sea level rise, and I write about how we're adapting to it. Should Charleston build a seawall? Can we start moving out of flood-prone areas? We have time to dig into these tough questions at the Post and Courier. But the only way we get to do that is if you subscribe. Please support our work at The Post and Courier as we bring you vital information on the future of this region. I do want to go back to that question of why Greenland and the connection to Charleston, because I think it's a really interesting kind of technical connection of of specifically why Charleston and Greenland. Yeah, so we'll, let's go back to the ice bag, and I'm going to mix some metaphors here because I'm allowed to. So you've got this big honking ice bag north of us. It has so much weight. It, it actually pulls the ocean toward it. It has gravity. It has a gravitational force. And it pulls the ocean toward it like a miniature moon. And it, it actually pulls the ocean off our coast, lowering our sea level. So what happens when that ice melts in in Greenland, that gravity locked in in that ice disperses. And then that gravitational force diminishes and seas slosh back toward our coast. And that makes our seas go higher than they would otherwise. Different places around the world are affected by Greenland's gravitational forces. When you hear terms like, oh, the seas are rising a foot or whatever, they might be rising more here or less here, depending on these gravitational forces. It's well known in in the scientific community. Hardly anybody's talking about it outside of academic circles because it's a little counterintuitive and a little hard to figure out. So that that was one one of the main reasons why I thought it was really important to go go to Greenland and, and really capture that concept and bring it home to readers. Lauren, you were trying to illustrate that Charleston-Greenland connection with your photos, and you put together a photo essay that kind of juxtaposes these scenes from Greenland and from the Low Country that have some parallels or similarities. What gave you that idea, and then how did you go about trying to find those visual connections? Well, I actually came up with the idea before we went to Greenland. When I found out that we were going, I wanted to come up with a way to make people feel visually connected to Greenland. When I look up news stories about Greenland, I see a lot of pictures of ice, which is beautiful, and it is, and I definitely photographed that. But I also wanted people to feel a connection there. And one thing when I was researching about Greenland before we went, you know, I saw that fishing is big industry for them, tourism is, they shrimp there. And so I saw a lot of these parallels that we have with them. And so... I kind of thought it'd be a neat idea to maybe try and photograph some things here and then go there and see if I could find some of those parallels. And some of it worked out of what I photographed before and some I didn't photograph until after I got back because there was something that I saw while I was there that I was like, oh, you see that in Charleston. 
So some of the images I paired, I have one of, I got these seagulls flying around this iceberg, and I took a similar picture before I left of a seagull flying in between the arches of the Arthur Ravenel Jr. Bridge. And it was the same time of day, so it was this pink sky, and they kind of lined up perfectly. Another one I took was, I took a picture of this huge iceberg, and then I went to Botany Bay, and I took a picture of a tree that's been washed away by the rising seas here. And so that was kind of more of a cause and effect. I wanted to pair up visually what's happening in Greenland to what's happening here. I also, in my photographs, wanted to show some of the local community in Greenland because a lot of times since I've gotten back, especially when I say I went to Greenland, people ask, oh, do people live there? And that's something that I actually didn't know. I didn't know before I went, you know, what that looked like, what life there looked like. And so I wanted to give people here a glimpse of what that looked like so that maybe people would feel more connected to the people who live in Greenland. On the first day out on that boat tour, too, I noticed that they had a rainbow row almost, which was really cool. They have a lot of these colorful houses because in the wintertime, it's so white there with all the snow and ice that they paint their houses these colorful colors. I think... Being there really showed me that we are all in this together, and I hope people feel that when they look at the pictures and read the story. Was there anything, a scene from the reporting trip, an interesting fact, another section that didn't make it in the story? Uh, Is there anything that maybe people won't see there that you'd like to share? We actually uh, hung out with a fisherman, Ringo, who took us to see his sled dogs. He barely spoke English, so in Greenland they speak, uh, they mainly speak Danish or Greenlandic. It has 150 letters in, in one word. So he's trying to speak English, and he took us to see his dogs, and all the dogs, all the sled dogs are kept out of the town, towns there, because sled dogs can be dangerous, so they keep them chained out of town. So he took us to see his dogs, and then went into his little shed, and he kept on bringing out things to show us. You know, he brought out some rocks he'd collected. He brought some, some seal feet. Yeah, seal feet. Yeah, and then, and then he brought a trophy that he'd won. We kept it was kind of a joke, like what what will he bring out next? But that one, you know, he 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 showed us. Uh, you know, his life. And I wish we could have gotten into that more. Yeah. And it was pretty remarkable too. He had very limited English and we were able to kind of communicate with him. I was showing him a picture of my dog who was a boxer. So he has a smushed face. He thought that was hilarious because they don't have dogs as pets there. They're tools. You know, he was calling us family to his dogs. He was telling his dogs to be nice to us because we're family and uh, just... The nicest people in the world, even when we have very limited communication. Greenlandic is not on Google Translate, so that was really disappointing and made it really difficult. And they're just their letters are pronounced in ways you wouldn't guess. So like mountain is spelled Q-A-Q-Q-A-Q, and it's pronounced hachach. Adding on to what Tony said, how long the words are, one word can mean a full sentence. So instead of saying multiple words, they kind of add on syllables to the root word to make a full sentence. Did you learn a Greenlandic phrase or sentence? I know that hoyanak is thank you. I learned another word that I probably shouldn't say on the podcast. Did you have any downtime in Greenland? And if so, what do you do if you have downtime in Greenland? 
It was really nice for me being over there. I felt so disconnected in a good way. We didn't have Wi-Fi for a few days at a time, so we didn't have TV. So I brought two books and I would just read in bed at night and read my book. Usually I would be tempted to turn on Netflix or be on my phone, but it was really nice just disconnect. I felt like I slept a lot better than I do over here. And also as a photographer, it was amazing being over there because like I said, it never got fully dark. And so you would see the light at like 10 p.m. It would look like, or even like 8 p.m. It would look like the sun is setting. And as a photographer, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I got to hurry up. I got to get these shots at this when this light is beautiful. But it would actually last for like five or six hours. So it was really amazing as a photographer. Yeah. So when you go on these these things, you're kind of working all the time. Even if you are eating your very first plate of musk ox, and drinking a Greenlandic beer, you're still you're still still working, you're still thinking about it. So it, it's 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 one great thing about this job when you're when when you're doing that kind of reporting, you're it doesn't feel like work. I don't do you call a you know a hike into this wonderland of nature work? I don't know. I would like to thank the Pulitzer Center and the Fund for Investigative Journalism for making this possible. They funded a lot of this project that made it possible for us to go, and we wouldn't have been able to. Do the story definitely not in the same depth if it weren't for them. It really was expensive. And that's one reason why you don't see a lot of reporting from there. Everything is essentially three times as expensive as it is here. You know, a box of cereal, 10 bucks, you know, a beer, 15 bucks, coffee, five bucks. So doing this it required some extra support outside the newspaper and then also with the newspaper's investigative reporting and climate fund. It took a, a lot of moving parts to make this happen. All right, listeners, that's all for today. Again, if you haven't read Tony's story and seen Lauren's photos, check those show notes for a link. We've also added a link to a great explainer video about the Greenland Connection by Brandon Lockett, who also made the background music you heard in today's episode. If you have questions about this episode or others, or have ideas for what kind of stories you want to hear next on the show, email us at understandsc at postingcareer.com or tweet us at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week.